Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray that as we look at this debate, dispute tonight in Acts chapter 15, that you help us to understand what is clarified there. We pray that you'll help us to understand something of what is essential to Christianity and what is not essential and, and how to deal with these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some people who enjoy a fight. But that's not true for most of us, is it? Most of us don't like conflict. We don't like arguments, we don't like fights, we avoid them if we can. But conflict is not always a bad thing, is it? Sometimes conflict can be productive. Sometimes it can help you to to clarify or resolve issues. I am very much a conflict avoider. But I have to admit, I've often found conflict productive. It's true, I'm sad to say, in my marriage. Um, Sometimes fighting about stuff between my wife and me has helped us to clarify some stuff. It's helped us to understand each other's hopes, to understand each other's expectations, to understand each other's likes and dislikes. Sometimes, I'm sad to say, conflict is what is required uh, to be productive with children, to, uh, to get them to learn something of discipline and behavioural appropriateness. Occasionally, even in relationships in church, conflict is productive. Sometimes the most productive times are times of conflict. And that, that is certainly true when it comes to church history. Some of the most important doctrines in Christianity have been forged and clarified in the context of conflict. Take, for example, the issue of the canon. You know what I mean when I say the canon? That's, that's deci- it's, it's understanding which books should be in the Bible, what should be in the Bible and what shouldn't be. Part of the reason the church had to, had to um, make any decision about what books should really be in the Bible and what books shouldn't be is because there were, there were people around the place who were saying that wrong stuff should be put in the Bible. There was a bloke called Marcion, there were people called the Gnostics, some of those letters and things are around nowadays, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, that kind of thing. Some of these people later on, they wanted to put all this wrong stuff in the Bible. And so in the conflict and debate that arose, the church had to clarify, well, what actually is God's word? What do we recognise as being appropriately in the Bible? Same with the issue of the Trinity. You know what I mean when I I say the Trinity? The fact that there is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until blokes like Arius denied the Trinity that the church actually had to think very carefully about, well, what is the truth about the Trinity? Right through church history, truth has been clarified through conflict. Well, here in Acts chapter 15, we have the first big theological conflict in church history. And as we'll see this evening, it is amazingly productive. It clarifies some critical stuff for us. The problem starts with uh, the church up in Syrian Antioch. The church, remember, that sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. The church in Antioch was made up of both Jews and non-Jews, both both Jews and Gentiles. And for a while that worked okay. But it didn't last. Some Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem and they said the Gentiles in the church, they need to become Jewish if they're going to be fair income Christians. 
They've got to get circumcised. They have to obey the laws of the Old Testament. Became a really big issue. The church was divided. In another part of the Bible, we see that the, the, the Jews even stopped eating with the Gentiles in church. You can imagine what, uh, what that would do for your church lunch or for suppers or something like that. You've got your little Jewish section and your little Gentile section in church suppers and never the twain shall meet. It's a big issue. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent off to Jerusalem to try to sort it out. Let's pick it up. Uh, look with me in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. Let's see what the issue is. So men came down from Judea to Antioch. It's, it's actually north, but because Jerusalem's on top of a mountain, they, they talk about coming down. Came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. See the issue? The church leaders gathered together. They discussed the issue, verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now, now Luke doesn't take us through all of the discussions that happened. Instead, what he does is he tells us about three key speeches, three decisive speeches. First, there's a speech by Peter. That's Jesus' closest friend, Peter, the, the leader of the 12 apostles. Peter starts off by retelling his experience. He tells the story that, that, uh, that we saw back in chapter 10, the story of what happened with Cornelius. Cornelius, you remember, was a Gentile. Peter told Cornelius and his family about Jesus, and God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit in the same way that he did for the Jews back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Cornelius spoke in tongues, uh, gave other visible signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Peter says... If God gave them the Holy Spirit, the same as he did for the Jews, then God must have forgiven them. God must have cleansed them the same as he did for the Jews. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jews for God to cleanse them. They just had to rely on Jesus. He purified their hearts by faith in Jesus. Verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter then makes clear that the Old Testament law can't save anyone. Even Jews themselves could never fully obey God's law. And so even, even the Jews themselves could never be saved by their obedience to God's law. Peter says the law was like a, an, an ox's yoke that was too heavy for them to bear. They, they couldn't keep it. Jews themselves cannot be saved by obeying God's law. That's, that's why Jesus came. 
That's why he died on the cross as a sacrifice. That's why he rose again from the dead. So, so all their failure to obey God's law could be, could be paid for, so they could be forgiven, so, so they could be rescued from God's anger and judgment. Jews are not saved by being Jewish. If they were, Jesus wouldn't have come. If a Jew is saved, if a Jew is saved, it is, a, is, a, it is as a free gift from God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter says, well, if, if we Jews can't be saved by being Jewish, then why would we try to make the Gentiles be Jewish? Where's the sense in that? Why would we put the yoke on them that even we couldn't bear? Salvation comes through Jesus alone, says Peter. Only Jesus, just Jesus, not Jesus plus something else. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. And so that is true for both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Well, that's decisive speech number one. The, uh, the second decisive speech comes from Paul and Barnabas. And what they do, they describe their mission. They talk about what God has been doing among the Gentiles. They talk about the miracles that God has been doing. You see, Cornelius wasn't the only Gentile who became a Christian and received God's spirit. Paul and Barnabas report, it's happening everywhere, guys. God is accepting Gentiles from all over the place and he's proving it with all kinds of powerful miracles. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. That's the second decisive speech. The, the third and final decisive speech comes from Jesus' own brother, from James. What James does, he goes back to the Old Testament to uh, the, the prophet Amos. He says that through the prophet Amos, God himself predicted that he would accept Gentiles. He quotes from Amos, and, and Amos said that, uh, that, that, that God would rebuild David's fallen tent. And I was talking about King David, you know, King David who ruled over Israel about 1000 BC. The idea of rebuilding his tent, it's got to do with, with God's promise that one of David's descendants would always be king. For many years, there was no descendant of King David as king. But, but God said, no, I will rebuild David's fallen tent. There will be someone from the, from the line of David as king again. Well, now, Acts chapter 15, God's fulfilled that, hasn't he? Jesus is a relative of King David. And Jesus has been raised again from the dead as the eternal king of everything and everyone. God has rebuilt David's fallen tent in the Lord Jesus. The thing is, that's not all that God promised. When God spoke through Amos, he said that, that, that when God rebuilt David's fallen tent, people from everywhere would come into God's kingdom, including, including Gentiles. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's, that's Peter, Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. 
as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. Well, the evidence is in from these three speeches. You've got, you've got the apostles' own experience of what God has been doing. He gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. He, he worked miracles among them. He demonstrated that he was accepting them, that he was purifying them when they trusted in Jesus. You've also got the theological foundation. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way that anyone can be rescued from God's judgment. And the only way to have Jesus save you is to rely on him. A Christian is someone who relies on Jesus. Full stop. No new sentence. And so anyone who does that, who, who relies on Jesus, is saved, Jew or Gentile. You've got the apostles' experience. You've got the theological foundation. And then finally you've got God's own Old Testament word on the matter. God promised that when the king in the line of David was, was re-established, that the Gentiles would come to him. That was always his purpose, and, and the church must not go against God's set purpose. Put it all together, it's a, it's a convincing case, isn't it? Gentile Christians need only to rely on Jesus, nothing else. You mustn't insist that they become Jews in order to be saved. In fact, you mustn't add anything to faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus alone. Jesus' grace alone that saves us. The thing is, that's not the end of the matter. Because there was still a real problem in the church. I remember one time... Quite a lot of years ago, I went to a conference to hear a, a missionary who I really liked. There's a man by the name of Don Richardson who's written some superb books. I'd only been a Christian a couple of years and I'd just become a Calvinist. I'd just come to understand that, that, that God is sovereign in salvation and I was very excited and loud-mouthed about it. Well, as poor Don Richardson spoke at this conference with a lot of people, it became very clear that he wasn't a Calvinist. He didn't agree with my views. And so I approached him during a break now, it was obviously an inappropriate time to be hassling this guy about theology, and so he just sort of fobbed me off, perfectly rightly. But in my youthful zeal and ignorance, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I kept hassling him, almost following him around, <laughs> hassling him. <clears throat> now, theologically, I haven't changed my views. I still think I was right. I think I was right in what I was saying. The problem was, I was just being plain rude. Uh, theologically I was right, but relationally I was being immature, insensitive, offensive, just rude. See, church isn't just about theology. Theology is important, but the church is not just about right doctrine. The church is about relationships. And the fact was, back in the time of Acts, there were things that Gentile Christians were doing that were really testing relationships in church. They were doing things that made the Jews feel really 
uncomfortable about eating with them. Things that made the Jewish Christians embarrassed in front of their unconverted families and friends as their, their, their Jewish non-Christian families and friends realised that they were hanging out with Gentiles who were doing this kind of stuff. Remember, at the time, you've got a church that is still mostly Jewish. And the Jews had God's law. They had the law of Moses deeply instilled in them. They, they'd heard it every week of their lives. They, they sang it, they read it, they memorised it. Every Saturday, every Saturday it was there for them in the synagogues. And so there were just some things about the way Gentiles conducted themselves that they couldn't bear. Not, not really moral issues, but things that were there in the law of Moses, things that they were used to. A lot of it had to do with food. Gentiles ate meat sacrificed to idols. They ate the meat from strangled animals. They ate meat with, with, with the blood still in it. All of these things are forbidden by the Jewish law. Leviticus chapter 17 is where it's really outlined. These are not kosher ways of eating meat. And one other issue was Gentile sexual practices. The very next chapter, Leviticus chapter 18, sets out a whole long list of exactly who you can and can't marry and exactly the way you should conduct yourself sexually. Gentiles didn't follow all those laws. Now, we need to get this straight. Theologically, there is nothing wrong with eating meat that isn't kosher. Jesus has declared all foods clean. You like drinking blood? Go ahead. Gentiles don't have to come under Jewish law. That's just been clearly established as a theological principle. But the problem is the Jews found it so offensive. An equivalent today might be if you, uh, if you visit a Japanese or a Korean person. You go to their house and you insist on wearing your shoes. That's not really wrong. Nothing in Christian teaching that says you have to take off your shoes in the house. But it's just rude. It's offensive. It makes them think that you are rude and uncouth. It's bad for your relationship. Well, the Jews found that, that, uh, that, some, of, that some of the Gentile food and sexual practices were offensive. Uh, it was really bad for their witness. They'd try to share the, their faith with their, their Jewish non-Christian friends and family, and they'd go, you've got to be joking. I'm not going to become a Christian and hang out with those grotty Gentiles with all those terrible things that they do. Uh, so there's more than just an issue of theology at stake here. There are issues of love, issues of fellowship, issues of being sensitive to people's feelings. Gentiles do not have to obey Jewish laws. That is clear. But then, of course, there's nothing to say that Gentiles have to disobey Jewish laws either. There's nothing to say that you have to eat pork. Not there in the Bible. You must have a ham sandwich, commandment number four or something. And so, so James is a bit more mature about it. He doesn't just say to the Gentiles... You don't have to follow the Jewish law, so you go ahead and do whatever you want. He asks them to be sensitive, to think not just about theology, but also to think about relationships, to be considerate of their Jewish fellow Christians. He says, now we do not want to put burdens on the Gentiles. That's very clear. But the fact is you've still got yourself a Jewish church here. And the Jews hear the law of Moses every single week. It's, it's deep down in, in who they are, so let's tell the Gentiles to be sensitive. And he picks out four offensive things to tell the Jews, tell the Gentiles not to do. Verse 19. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. There it is, theological principle. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, 
from sexual immorality, I think that's Leviticus 18, sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from, and from blood. For, and here's the reason they need to be sensitive, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, the apostles, the elders, the whole church, they agree this is a really mature, thoughtful approach. And so they, they send some men back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They, they take a letter which them, with them which, which details their decision. The letter's there in verses 23 to 29. The letter's taken to Antioch. It's delivered. The, the people take some time to explain what it means and, and, and why it is the way it is. And it's got the desired effect. The issue is sorted out. Fellowship is restored. The people are glad. And the men are sent back to Jerusalem in peace. Pick it up in verse 30. Verse 30. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So there it is, the first big theological barney in church history. I'm sure if you'd been there in Jerusalem at the time, you'd have been squirming in your seat. You'd have felt very uncomfortable as, they, as all these godly Christians argued with each other. I'm sure people didn't enjoy this conflict. But this meeting in Acts 15 was extremely productive. What the church has done here is to clarify two vital issues. Two issues that are still vital for us today. Now, firstly, firstly, they've shown us what is essential for Christianity. And second, they've shown us, they've shown us how to deal with those things that are not essential. Let's think about each one in turn. First, essential. There is one essential element to being a Christian, and that is this. It is to rely on Jesus. Jesus has graciously died and risen again for us. That alone is what can purify our hearts before God. That alone is what can rescue us from God's judgment. As Peter put it, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved. A Christian is a person who relies on the Lord Jesus who died and rose again for us. That's the essence of being a Christian. Now, this might sound obvious. I hope it is obvious to you. But it's got extraordinary implications. On the one hand, on the one hand if you realise that you're a sinner, if you realise that you are in the wrong with God, if you realise that you are not worthy to be accepted by God, if you realise that you can't do anything to make yourself acceptable to God, well, this is the greatest news that could ever be. This is the greatest. You can be saved from God's judgment. You, at the last day, can stand before God with a pure heart, clean, acceptable before God. You can. just one essential thing you need to do. You need to rely on Jesus. 
You need to say to God, God, I, I have disobeyed you. I'm sorry. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again for me. I rely on him. Please forgive me. Please save me from your anger. Please make my heart clean. I hope you've done that. I hope you've done that because if you have, the great news is that's all you need to do. Faith in Jesus is the one essential. On the one hand, it's great news. On the other hand, though, the fact that faith in Jesus is the one essential is a very exclusive thing. And in our culture, well, that's, that's, that's extremely offensive to many people. Just think about it for a second. The one essential thing, the one essential thing for salvation is to rely on Jesus. What does that mean? That means that Muslims who don't rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. That means that Hindus who do not rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. That means that Buddhists who do not rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. That means that ordinary nice Australians who do not rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. That means that, that Presbyterians who do not rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. That means that the members of your family, that the members of my family, those people we love who do not rely on Jesus will not be saved from God's anger. It means that if you do not rely on Jesus, you will not be saved from God's anger. I know what a nice person you are. You're not nice enough. You're not going to be saved from God's anger unless you rely on Jesus. The fact that we can be saved through Jesus is the greatest news ever, but it is very exclusive, very politically incorrect, even heartbreaking, isn't it? If you're thinking about those people that you know and love who do not rely on him, but we can't compromise. You can't compromise because this is the one essential. Acts 15 clarifies what is essential. But this dispute has also made clear for us what to do about non-essentials, about the things that are not necessary for salvation. Firstly, there's what you must not do, and then there is what you must do, or what you should do. Firstly, what we, might, what we must not do. See if you can get this, because it might sound confusing. We mustn't ever make non-essentials essential. Did you get that? We mustn't ever make non-essentials essential. That is, we mustn't ever say that people have to rely on Jesus, the essential, plus something else to be saved. That, that's the decision here in Acts chapter 15. That's, that's actually what is going on here. You must not say that people must rely on Jesus plus be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That's the best thing you could possibly do, is be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That's, that's God's own law. You want to pick something that you could do and add to Jesus, that's the best thing you could possibly pick. And so this is true of any other plus that you might add to Jesus. It's not rely on Jesus plus be Jewish. It's not rely on Jesus plus anything. It's just rely on Jesus. Again, this might sound obvious, and, and I hope it is obvious. Salvation comes through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But again, the implications in our culture are very offensive. This means... This means that we have to oppose the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholicism says that we are saved by Jesus 
plus the sacraments of the church and our good works. And that's why we need to send missionaries to Peru and to Spain and to Ecuador. It means we have to oppose also the teaching of extreme forms of Pentecostalism. Those groups who say that you have to rely on Jesus plus have some kind of uh, Pentecostal experience to be saved. It means we have to oppose anyone who tries to add anything to faith in Jesus alone. Do you see the point? It's not good enough for someone to say that relying on Jesus is part of what you need to, be, need to do to be saved. We have to insist that relying on Jesus is all you have to do to be saved. We must not allow non-essential things to be made essential in that way. Okay, so what then do we do with non-essentials? We've seen what we must not do. We must not make them essential. So what do we do with them? Answer from this passage... We act with love and with sensitivity. The thing about non-essentials is they're not essential. We have freedom with them. We can do them, but we don't have to do them. We can not do them, but we don't have to not do them. We are free. So what we need to do is use our freedom with love. We need to use our freedom in a way that, that promotes Christian fellowship and furthers the work of the gospel. That means if you're dealing with Jews, if you're in a, a church full of Jewish people, like with the early church here, you don't eat non-kosher. You don't bring ham sandwiches to the church picnic. You don't go around flaunting, flaunting the Jewish law. It means if you're dealing with Japanese people, you don't go stomping through their house with your shoes on. It means that the, the way you dress, you dress in a way that's sensitive to others. It means the way you eat, you eat in a way that's sensitive to others. All these things that we have freedom on, we will serve other people with our freedom. We'll think more about that next week. Okay, to conclude. Can you see what this productive conflict in Acts has clarified? It's made clear what is essential to being a Christian. We must rely on the grace of Jesus and it's also made clear for us what to do with non-essentials. First, we mustn't ever let them become essential. But then second, we ought to use our freedom on non-essentials in a loving way. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Father, we thank and praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have done all that it takes for our salvation. We thank you that his death and resurrection pays the full price for every wrong thing we've ever done, every right thing that we've ever not done. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that by relying on Jesus alone, we can be completely saved. And we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that this news is for all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done. We thank you, Father, that this news is for us. Our Father, do please help us to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, to only rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, to rely only on the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.